dark and stormy where you are. I'm I'm bright and sunny here. I wish I was out in dark and stormy while we're recording this episode. Oh, I know it's in the ambiance. So you know, spooky, ooky setting for <laughs> recording this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my 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 apartment is really scary right now for sure. <laughs> Dead by marriage. Uh, you're Michael, ready to go. did, did ready you hear that? Did you hear that in the background? <laughs> it sounded like. <laughs> you know what? Uh, you know, you know what that sound's supposed to mean, right? Oh yeah, yeah. You're gonna kill your mom. Yeah, it means kill, 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 mom, mom, mom. I did. That that's... was that's <laughs> a uh, Harry Manfredini special, but we'll get to that here in a little bit. Um, well, welcome everybody to That Movie Was. I'm one of your hosts, Matt, joined tonight by my co-host, Michael. As always, hello to you guys. In this episode, we're talking about Friday the 13th, released in 1980. So, did you hear that thunderbolt right there? I actually did hear that. (laughs) Was that not perfect timing for that introduction right there? Oh, it's an omen. <laughs> it is for real. That is that was, a good that side was, or a bad side? I think we should continue and see how it plays out. If my apartment yeah. spontaneously catches fire or something like that, you hear like some real screeching screams from me, then uh, you know, just keep continuing on without me. You'll have to listen to see if we both make it to the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say the last two movies that we've covered – the guest, the burbs, they have some horror elements. I wouldn't call either one a horror movie. This is the first true horror movie that we've done. Yeah, we kind of tiptoed to it. Like we did an action thriller to a suspenseful thriller to now just a, an actual horror film. Oh, and I'm glad to be doing this movie too. It's one of my favorites. Cool, but- cool. And I'm, I'm down for it. I'm also, I'm also a big fan. I mean, not every Friday the 13th movie because there are quite a few I actually delved like a little deeper into actually how many there were and it's preposterous there's like a ridiculous amount of Friday that's right there are 12 Friday the 13th films that includes the 2009 (laughs) reboot right let's see I'm looking it up right now to see exactly how many there are um oh my gosh man I'm just looking at some of the titles for these. There's one where Jason goes straight to hell. Oh, there's yep. 11. 11 reboots of this movie. Now, yeah, there's 11 films in the series and then a 2009 reboot. And also one television show, which really just shares the name only. It doesn't have Jason or no crossover with the movies, really. Really? So what's the point with it? It's just It was just like a coincidental type of thing. Money, 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 man. Money, money. <laughs> the name had some cachet, and so I think Paramount wanted to, you know, just make a TV show that, you know, they just slapped on the name and people watched. I mean, it worked, but there, okay, I, you know, I don't know. You might not agree with this, you may, but I, I'm one of those believers that the sequels are not really as good as the originals. And um, if there's one like topic that I think of whenever I think of multiple sequels that tend to get worse and worse, it's the horror films genre. If there isn't 
five Leprechaun movies, you know, how many Friday the 13th, 11, and then all the Halloweens that came as well. I mean, if, if we're talking about Hollywood cinema here, really milking the ideas to the, you know, till they're bare bones, we're talking the horror genre. Yeah, I would actually tend to agree with you on a lot of franchises. You know, Halloween 1, my favorite Halloween. Nightmare on Elm Street 1 is my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street. But I would say that as far as Friday the 13th, even though this is the movie that kicked off one of my favorite movie franchises, this movie actually lands somewhere in the middle of my ranked list, Friday the 13th movies. I'd actually say that Part 6 is my favorite one, and that's six movies deep. You know, that's uh, <laughs> that's the first one that zombie Jason in it. So, <laughs> oh, it, it wasn't it wasn't part, uh, you know, part eight where Jason goes to Manhattan and starts killing people in Manhattan City. I <laughs> that's also a great one, but he actually only gets to Manhattan in about the last 20 minutes of the movie. It's more like Jason goes on a cruise. Jason is on a quest <laughs> to make it to New York. Yeah. Just when he thought the cruises couldn't get any scarier these days. I saw the trailer for it, anticipating for this podcast episode, and it was hilarious because it was just like Jason looking out over a bed of water, looking at like a sky, like light of the city, and everything like that. It's they got music like Skyline, Big City, <laughs> New York, and then next thing you know, like Jason, it's Jason. He's turning around, and the next thing you know, there's a couple scenes of some people dying. And that's yeah. What, that's what, some real uh, Huey Lewis in the news going over him. <laughs> you know, he, he's on his way to Radio City to be on, you know, um, he, he's ready to be on the talk show. So he's getting there, but he's murdering his way down there. I'll go on the subway and walk down uh, 40th Avenue. I would say, actually, if you ever get the chance, check out Jason Goes to Manhattan Part 8. It's, it's worth it alone for just the... It's probably the last good Friday the 13th in the series other than Jason X, where he goes to space, has parts <laughs> that are great. But uh, the one in between them, Jason Goes to Hell, number nine, yeah, it's complete trash. Yeah, it, Don't even watch that one. But um, today, we're talking okay. about the original Friday the 13th. Yes, we are. Released in 1980, directed by Sean S. Cunningham, and written by Victor Miller. So we'll get into a little bit more about this writer-director duo in a little bit here. But let's start first with, I mean, our feelings and, you know, how we were introduced into the Friday the 13th. Our emotions. You know, (laughs) our way of thinking. You know, how does your aura feel about this film, all right? I love these movies. I I, uh, I own all of them. I rewatch them from time to time. Um, it's actually been a long time since I've rewatched the first one, but I remember I saw it at way too young of an age. My mom picked it up from some bargain bin at Walmart or something, just on a whim. Brought it home. Saw it when I was probably about six or seven. Scared the shit out of me. But also, I mean. At that age, you kind of like being scared, you know, so it was something that, you know, I would revisit. Um, <laughs> how about that's, you? That's, that's how I met Mrs. Rachel, and I find it hilarious that she pranked her own son by getting him a horror movie at the bargain bin and then got him to watch it tonight. That's, oh, uh, yeah, that's, uh, she doesn't seem like that kind of woman, but that's hilarious. But if, I mean, 
if we're shooting straight with me, Matt, shoot straight with me. All right. How scared were you on a scale of one to 10? Are we talking like couldn't sleep the night, the night couldn't, you know, I was worried about that. You know, were you waking up in a cold sweat or were we just talking about a little bit of SpongeBob SquarePants and then you were off to bed sleeping about SpongeBob? Jason didn't scare me as much as some other movies I had seen too young. Um, I was more afraid of Chucky as a kid than I was Jason coming to get me. Cause you know, I, I didn't live near a camp or a lake. And so <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm safe. Like what, what is he going to do? Wander into my house. Chucky on the other hand, I mean, you know, I, I grew up with dolls in the house. And so I, uh, I thought any of them might be able to come to life at any time. Yeah. Um, I think that's, yeah. I think that's the going thing. It's like, it's always a setting, isn't it? You're right. It's like, Oh, what's the rationale that Chase is going to find my house all the way from, you know, what was the setting, New Jersey? Oh, he's going to come all the way from New Jersey to get me? Nah. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, my Buzz Lightyear action figure dog can start shooting darts at me, you know, and try, try and cut me down. So, I, yeah, I can see that. I can see how Chucky was definitely – mine was uh, The Grudge. I didn't oh, like that. Oh, yeah. Didn't like that. So I saw it at a young age myself, but it was my brother's doing, putting it on like pay-per-view at um, the hotel we were staying at. And the worst part about it was not the girl herself, because she was kind of honestly, even at that age, I thought she was just annoying. She's just making yeah. these, <laughs> she's just making these like I can't she's got that smoker's lung that she's been working on for twenty. <laughs> <laughs> Get that but, checked and, out. Yeah, and all she is is just this like pale, you know, dark haired girl. But the part that got me is when the girl is hiding in her bed and the grunge comes from like the sheets and pulls her through the sheets, like into the bed. I don't know exactly where she went in the bed, but she got sucked in. I didn't like that part. I didn't like <laughs> thinking my bed could ever portray me like that. What about the cat boy? Uh, cat boy scare you? No, I, it's, you know, at that point, who knows? I, I was still too traumatized by the fact that I thought my bed would one day consume me. Yeah, yeah. It's tough being betrayed by your own bed, man. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I get thought <laughs> of some of the knowing that that's my one safe haven. So you're supposed to be pulling the covers over your head, and now that's your undoing. <laughs> that will be your downfall <laughs> so friday the 13th when it came out in 1980 it was a colossal hit and i i don't know how you know that's even understanding it so it grossed five 59.8 million dollars worldwide yeah, just number. shy of 60 million worldwide on a six hundred thousand dollar budget and yeah. it's just insane for the times and that's not even i mean that's 60 million that's not even accounting for inflation or anything i mean you know it, these days who knows what it would be i could look it up but i'm not going to <laughs> <laughs> you could yeah i think i think we're going i think they just this guy sean here our boy sean he yeah. just really hit the niche he found the exact thing that america was looking for because i believe the first two movies he did before were like children's hits uh, he was, he was directing, he already directed two previous films beforehand. I don't have their names right from me, but I know they weren't popular just for the fact that Hollywood was telling them that America wants to see these like family films, but America didn't want to see family films. And the, the closest, you know, blockbuster hit that, 
uh, just came the year previously was Halloween. And so he even said in this documentary that I was watching in preparation for this fact that, you know, one viewing of Halloween, the man was able to jot down a few notes here and there, and he found the recipe to make a decent horror film. And that's exactly what America was wanting at the time was good horror stuff. So good for him to find, you know, not only the right movie to go after, the type of genre he should be working with, but also the timing. Yeah, man, that's absolutely right. And I'm glad that you brought up some points about the behind the scenes and, you know, what came before Friday the 13th, because I want to say that before we continue, we want to let listeners know that this episode is going to be a little bit different than some of our previous ones where we, you know, dive more into plot and things like that. This episode, we want to talk. Yeah, we want to talk less about plot this episode more about the behind the scenes during the making of Friday the 13th because, you know, we both watched documentaries on this movie. I think it's fascinating how it all came together, came to be. So if you listeners want to avoid spoilers, go ahead, pause this episode, watch the movie. I know it's currently streaming on Amazon Prime. And then come back to the podcast. So, Michael, yeah, had you seen this movie or any of the sequels before watching it for this episode. Yes, I have. I have seen this movie. If not only for Kevin Bacon, but for <laughs> the crispy, crispy Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, yeah it's, I like my bacon extra crispy. So you but, were not surprised by the killer when you found out it was going to be, you know, Jason's mom, Pamela Voorhees. No. And I thought, well, of course, I mean, I, when I first saw it, I was, of course, but yeah. at the same time, though, I mean, I, I'm now taken to the fact that it's been 15 years since the first time I've ever seen this movie. So I wasn't like quite looking at films the way I do now in a more critical stance. But uh, and watching it again, I noticed that it takes on a very um, Bates Motel-esque type of plot and it's, so, and it's essentially towards the twist as well. So that's um, Alfred Hitchcock's nor, Psycho. Um, Psycho, right? Psycho, thank you. So what was Bates is the TV show that they just called. They came out with, right? right? Yeah. So, right. Alfred Hitchcock is Psycho is a correlation to this film in the sense that, you know, the real killer was not, uh, you know, we thought was his mom, but it was, uh, you know, it was actually the son or vice versa in this situation where we thought that Jason was walking around being the killer when essentially it was his mom. Uh, and I thought that was, um, uh, during the film watching it, you know, all the victims that come across, they don't seem surprised by the person that's coming to see them. They, it's almost like they recognize the person, but then of course they get killed not knowing that that's the true killer. Yeah. So there is a sense going from the film that it's not this like scary person who we see at the end of the film that pops out of the lake and pulls down. Um, uh, the girl. They, they, she. It's more. Of, <laughs> it's it's um, it's this it's his mom. It's his mom the entire time. That's the actual yeah. true killer. And it was the mom in the very beginning. That was back in the fifties. Yeah. So killer. I think it's you know all these camp calendars just see what looks like a uh, you know nice kind of homely uh, old woman coming for them, and they're you know hey can I help you? Can I be getting anywhere? And she's actually revealed to be the killer at the end, 
which, you know, I think that's why when I saw this movie growing up, I wasn't so scared of it as I was with something like, you know, the, the scream franchise or something like that, where it's, you know, a masked killer to be afraid of. Obviously Jason is associated with the Friday 13th movies. Somebody who's, you know, seen the sequels only and not the first one would think that his first movie would have been Friday the 13th, number one, but yeah, it is, it is his mom, Pamela Voorhees in this movie. And, um, I think a lot of people, you know, kind of, uh, put that out of their heads. You know, that's even one of the, um, questions at the beginning of, uh, scream when <laughs> drew barrymore is being quizzed it's you know who's the killer in the original friday the 13th she says off the cuff jason Voorhees. it's like eh, wrong that's <laughs> pamela Voorhees' his mother so oh uh, yeah good cor- yeah good correlation there for sure yeah you're right so uh, yeah the fact that to answer your question of course i have seen other freddie uh you know friday the 13th movies i you know i think the first movie of them I actually saw in theaters was back in 2003 with the Freddy vs. Jason film, which was kind of a shit show in the sense of just like the fact that it's these two horrific monsters that are fighting each other, but then they're like friends at the end or something like that. Or no, Jason walks away with Freddy's uh, head. Uh, Freddy's head yep. cut off. Yeah, and He exactly. winks at the camera. <laughs> exactly. That. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a movie. you know it's it had its time and place and i think 2003 was you know that time and place i remember it had like a real uh chicken soundtrack and stuff like that a lot of like corn and puddle of mud (laughs) sounding soundtrack yeah for sure it was definitely like that rob zombie-esque type of thing like the halloween that he created later on of course but uh (laughs) Right. But it was, you know, I always thought that film, like how crazy it would have been if they would have just, you know, got through their differences and been like, hey, there's a lot of killing going around here. What if we both just work together and like just, just kill people? You know, it could have, that movie could have easily turned around and been Freddy and Jason versus the world. Yeah, but it actually did have the highest kill count of any Jason or Friday 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street movies up to that point. It did, oh, did yeah. It? Oh, did it? Can you can you confirm that kill count, please? Uh, well, we do have two. More to I believe there, so I counted one, but then I turned it off because I was too scared. <laughs> <laughs> the guy, he, he was he was in a real sketchy position. You know, he was locked in the cab, and I knew the killer was in there. But I turned it off. I don't know if he's dead. I bet he yeah, made it. Out it was the uh, the first kill where Jason folds up a guy in a bed, <laughs> and so his feet are now touching the back of his head. And I was like, "Ooh, scary!" <laughs> and I turned it off. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you there. Body shouldn't contort that so way. So let's let's place Friday the Thirteenth. 1980 in its its place in time at the time so two years before this a movie called halloween came out john carpenter's halloween in 1978 huge success that year and really there had been you know horror movies before it which you know were successful you've already mentioned um Psycho, Psycho. huge horror movies that black christmas things like that but I I think this movie would not have happened without the success of John Carpenter's Halloween. So tons of filmmakers afterwards, they aim to copy that successful formula. 
Friday the 13th was the first one released just two years later to reach those same heights, and it did it by being both bloodier and cheaper than Halloween. So, yeah, it definitely was cheap considering, like, of course, you'll, I'm um, sounds like you're probably going to go, it's more of the, you know, budget saving ideas that they had at the time. Mm-hmm. But to think that movie, even 30 years, 40 years ago, and stuff like that, like $600,000, that is a really, really cheap, thin line budget for a film. It is, especially a Paramount produced film. Um, but yeah, it's so like Halloween, cast was comprised of mostly attractive, mostly unknown teenagers. I think that's how they saved a lot of money by not having big names. Right. Biggest name in Friday the 13th right. was Betsy Palmer. And she doesn't even, you know, appear on screen until the last 15 minutes. So, right. Yeah. So Betsy uh, started her uh, career as a more goody twos shoes type of golden girl. Um, type of actress and uh, i'm sure we'll mention it later on but it's a very funny reason while she ends up actually joining the cast and stuff like that but you're correct in the fact that it's mostly just these fresh out of school kids probably you know they probably just worked at burger king the year before or and now they're trying to make their success in uh show business and so i think uh, the, at least for the youngest crowd the only one that had any sort of uh, attention was Kevin Bacon. That's right. And I do have some information on Kevin Bacon in here, but we will get to that. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's people just trying to, you know, get their foot in the door, get into the business, but it does sound like the actual shooting on this movie was hell. (laughs) And uh, so where the correlations between Friday the 13th and Halloween come from Friday the 13th was really trying to take some of the cues from Halloween. We already said, you know, comprise it of attractive unknown teenagers. A lot of the kills do from the point of view of the killer and then also add in that musical score for good effect. You know, you need a signature theme when the killer's around. In this case, it's the ki-ki-ki, ma-ma-ma. And then, you know, you, you need some basically like strings and things for, a, you know, a fake scare coming. Or, you know, when the killing actually starts happening. And so, as we're talking about the score, it's probably a good idea right now to mention who composed the music for Friday the 13th. And that was a gentleman named Harry Manfredini. Um, So he did the music for this movie. He also did the music for a lot of the sequels, uh, three of them excluded. That's uh, part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan that we already discussed. Freddy versus Jason that we already discussed, which (laughs) we talked about the uh, music in that movie. Yeah, Definitely was not using strange, uh, strings yeah, or orchestras. And then the 2009 nope. reboot, which was trying to kind of start a new step on the franchise. And I guess that's why they, you know, tossed aside Harry Manfredini. Yeah, I, I, I can't think of a harder thing to do than trying to reboot a franchise that's already like basically hit every sort of stone like you know it's hit it's stepped on every step of what it could possibly have gone to the next level for it and so if we're t- and i mean if we're being honest i mean now we're just going to probably be repeating them ourselves if this franchise continues much further into you know i don't know underwater fights <laughs> or you know uh, friday the 13th on mars they already did space but no one got no far, they didn't so, get to you mars. know yeah, like, 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be the one in charge of trying to reboot a classic franchise. You're never going to uh, make everybody happy in the audience. I think the most successful one was probably uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they had a reboot in like 2003, I think it was, and. That was actually right. done by the same company that did the Friday the 13th 2009 reboot, Platinum Dunes, which uh, that's Michael Bay's um, company. But mm -hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre has quite a bit of a following itself, so it couldn't understand why that movie got, gained so much more popularity with the reboot just for the fact that it took the more gorish like, way of horror instead of something like with... Uh, Friday the Thirteenth or Nightmare on Elm Street. It's really for the it's really for the scare aspect, you know. There is, of course, is you know, bloody scenes, of course, and stuff like that. But I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the uh, that's where we start getting into like the grotesque type of John, like a theme in yeah, horror. Yeah, and surprisingly, I mean, the original one in the you know seventies, late seventies, actually didn't have much gore at all. But it was the two thousand three reboot where they really started getting into. You know, kind of the gore, blood fest kind of stuff. And I think that's maybe why it was a little bit more successful. Not exactly my thing, Perhaps. but um, yeah, for some people, it definitely is. But hey, while we're talking about gore, it's a good time to mention uh, Tom Savini, who uh, he was the special effects makeup artist on Friday the 13th. And actually, in my opinion, you know, one of the people who really. Uh, cemented Friday the 13th being a breakout hit. Um, so, absolutely. A little background on Savini. Yeah. Uh, he served in Vietnam as a combat photographer. And there he kind of became intimately acquainted with death and dismemberment. Um, wow. As you can imagine, you know, he's just seeing, you know, body parts <laughs> laying on the ground and dead yeah. people every day. Or, or yeah. So, I have a quote here from Savini. He says, my job was to shoot images of damages to machines and to people. Through my lens, I saw some hideous stuff. To cope with it, I guess I tried to think of it as special effects. And so... Nah, that's one way of doing it, I guess. You know, if, if that's the best way you can take away and get through the day, then why not? Yeah, it's definitely, de definitely difficult, but, you know, you got to reconcile it to yourself somehow. And I guess that's that's how he did it, is thinking that he was shooting through a camera. Um and so, yeah, 1978, he comes home from Vietnam. He was actually hired uh, to do the effects for George Romero's vampire movie, Martin, and then also Dawn of the Dead. Um, he had some background with uh, George Romero, who, you know, he became uh, really on the scene from Night of the Living Dead. Um, and yeah, based on the strength of his work on these movies, Tom Savini, he was brought yeah. on to handle the special effects makeup for Friday the 13th. And in addition, sounds like kind of a, you know, a, an easier job. And like, I don't, I don't know. I <laughs> not being a makeup artist myself or anything like that. But the fact that he worked just to, off of two previous zombie films where you're actually having to try and make people look undead. That sounds like a tougher job than to, you know, pull some of the kill scenes that they did for this film. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, he did a great job in Martin. Um, you know, he there was a scene in there where it's a vampire movie, and it, I guess there's a scene where they have to do some, like, 
bloodletting and a, a really gross thing with like a razor blade on an arm kind of thing. But uh, Dawn of the Dead, yeah, I mean, you, you'll see, like, if you go back and look at that movie, some of the effects now look dated, but he was definitely doing a lot more work, special effects wise, in that movie than he did in Friday the 13th. You know, there's some pretty notable kills in this movie. Um, I think the one that comes to mind for me is uh, Kevin Bacon's throat <laughs> in that movie, the arrow coming through the bottom of the bed. Oh, and then, I know, and they went. They went into more detail about how they were using they were using sheep's blood in order to like get the the blood, and they basically had a pipe, like a pipe that they were putting like sheep's blood, and that's what was like what was actually coming out from that. That's a good part too. Mine is always the uh, axe to the face <laughs> that that uh, Kevin Bacon's like um, like girlfriend, I Marcy. guess, at the time yeah. of this movie is. Thank you, thank you, Marcy. Perfect. Some of that. So yes, basically there was a bit of styrofoam that they had to like paint her face. So like the, the wood handle was the actual part of the axe, but they had a little bit of styrofoam that they were in work in there. But the fact that you just got a full on sense of that. It was is it's a tie between that or the fact that actually you know um, Jason's mom take uh, Mrs. Voorhees gets her head chopped off. Yeah right yeah and then she uh, <laughs> reaches up <laughs> on the body without a head. Well yeah like I don't know she's like ah I'm like I don't know like, I didn't know what to do with that I'm like I don't know how much more of like a reaction time maybe she was already coming up with her hands or something like that but I think when your head's gone you're not really yeah it's one of those uh, chicken with her head cut off kind of thing just you know you got like five <laughs> seconds of like wait what <laughs> it's like that cartoon sense when your head's missing and you and you're reaching to where your head's supposed to be like oh this dog is not moving yeah so I, he did he did have some uh, you know standout kills for this movie and you know it, it was it was definitely bloodier than halloween was um two years beforehand i mean i don't think anybody can deny that but i think tom savini's most lasting contribution to this film and the entire friday the 13th franchise was actually jason Voorhees himself so kind of hard to believe now but jason Voorhees didn't even exist in the script that victor miller wrote up and the film was originally just going to end with, you know, our heroine, Alice. She's floating out on the lake. But then Savini saw a movie that came out a couple years prior named Carrie, you know, based off the uh, Stephen King novel, which had a uh, surprising, mm -hmm. you know, jump scare right at the end. He said, hey, let's implement that. And so, yeah, I mean, he he did the makeup for this disfigured kid who's uh, been living in the lake for <laughs> years, I guess just resorting to, you know, living off the land or whatever. And uh, that's our one last scare in the movie. So none of those sequels might've happened if it weren't for Tom Savini. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because that honestly is the scariest part of Jason coming straight out of the river and just grabbing her down. Like, but it seems so necessary. She's just chilling in the middle of the lake, like, oh, thank goodness the cops are here. Like, all is, all is safe now. But, I mean, if we're going to um, take notoriety, yeah, for all horror films or sci-fi films or uh, even fantasy stuff, it really comes down to costume design and makeup artists. They can really make or break the character and, 
you know, how we feel about, or, you know, how film comes together all together. You know? Absolutely. And so, yeah, we've talked about a little bit behind the scenes, but you know, Hey, in honor of a movie that started one of my favorite film franchises, we put together a list of 13 behind the scene facts that you may not have known about Friday the 13th listener. And so first one that we have written down here, we have writer, writer, director, producer, <laughs> Sean Cunningham began his film career. WDP, man. He's coming all the That's right. Yeah. Sean Cunningham began his film career making softcore porn and actually gave Wes Craven, who you may know from Last House on the Left, Hills Have Eyes, Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream, his big break. So, Oh, Sean, you dirty dog, you. Dude, you're taking your jumps here from the porn industry, and here you know I got my big chance in Hollywood here. And if I'm being, if I'm being frank right now, if I can speak true to you, Matt, like I always do. I don't know. I would think that a lot of horror movies have that like similar sexual attribute because I, I and I think the reason behind it, at least from my uh, perspective, is the fact that you're you're most vulnerable when you're like having mm-hmm. sex with someone, you know, and that's when it becomes the most pristine time to you know act do, do something and get the kill or, or something like that, but. If there is one reoccurring theme, and maybe it started with Halloween, I'm not necessarily sure if it did, but I remember watching in that documentary I had mentioned, um, Return to Crystal Lake, the fact that Sean was talking about one of the things that you needed was to have, you know, not only kids, but kids having sex. Because if you have sex in horror movies, you die. It's like the crime, the crime you pay for. To getting a definitely so that's one of the uh, rules that was set up in scream you know if you, if you have sex or you do drugs or you drink in a movie you're going to die and that's why a lot of our uh you know heroines in the movie you know alice in this case one of the ones who doesn't have sex she makes it to the end of the movie and so um yeah i mean i think that's definitely one of the mainstays in horror um that <laughs> if you get it on then you are going to die in that movie to all, to all our young listeners out there, take heed in this. Take heed in this. If you, you know, a vow of celibacy <laughs> and to have waiting to have sex until your marriage, that might just save your life. <laughs> so let's talk about the early career of Sean Cunningham. So in the early 1970s, producer, director Sean Cunningham quit his job as a theater director slash stage manager to make movies, starting off with two softcore pornos. Name of these movies, The Art of Marriage, and together <laughs> those those don't sound too sexy to me i don't know <laughs> nothing no it doesn't neither of them really do i mean they sound like uh, i wouldn't even call them romance films those they, they, those those sound like titles to those cheap five dollar romance novels that you get like a uh uh airport uh shopping like shopping uh, yeah. corner and so you pay five bucks for it, so you have something to read. Oh, yeah, like. it's got the uh, nice cover that's done in uh, <laughs> like a watercolor. Yeah, it's, it's the guy with his, his – yeah, it's, he's got his own big pirate ship, and he's got long, flowing blonde hair with a girl with big tits on his yeah. top right arm. You know, that's, that's what we're looking at right here. Off. <laughs> so Cunningham and his assistant editor, Wes Craven, they partnered together to make Last House on the Left in 1972 – 
And then they parted ways in 75 when Craven left for Hollywood to pursue more legitimate filmmaking. And Cunningham stayed in New York to make family-friendly films, you know, after his softcore porn days were over. <laughs> <laughs> and like I mentioned a little earlier before was the fact that, yeah, it, Hollywood was telling Cunningham here that family-friendly films were the way to go to make big bucks. But after uh, two of his films, they just didn't work yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. They didn't work off and he knew that he needed to go a different So route. that leads us to, uh, you know, fact number two. Sean Cunningham and Friday the 13th screenwriter, Victor Miller, met while ripping off other kids' movies. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Who is this guy, Sean Cunningham? So first, he's starting his career off with the soft porn porn industry. And now he's ripping off other movies, off the kids and stuff like that. He's oh, a hustler, man. He's looking for anything to make that dollar. And it, it ended up working it's out for him. Horror, horror movies. A little respect for him, but you know, we'll see. You know, this is only fact two of thirteen, so we'll see if John's got any more secret uh, skeletons. Oh, I'm sure he has plenty. Yeah, so Cunningham and Miller they met in 1977 while making a low budget ripoff of Bad News Bears called Here Come the Tigers, which (laughs) that's a slap (laughs) in the face of a movie name. It's basically very close to bad news. Tigers and bears, oh my. So, (laughs) yeah, Cunningham directed that movie. Miller wrote it. And so by that point, Cunningham had enough experience, no success since Last House on the Left. And Victor Miller was a former novelist slash playwright. He was just trying to, you know, get started with screenwriting. So here comes the Tigers, to nobody's surprise, failed, <laughs> as did the next uh, G-rated family film from that duo named Manny's Orphans. So they, they've had two failures on their hands here, and they're thinking, ah, it's probably time that we throw in the towel on these kids' movies. Yeah, yeah, if that's not where the money is, then you got to think outside of the box here. Uh, thank, thank goodness they did, because we, we got a match. Yeah, out of it. fact number three, John Honeycam called up Victor Miller. He said, hey, Halloween's making a lot of money at the box office. Why don't we rip it off? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sean, you, you clever, clever girl. Clever girl. He, he knows where the money is. That man is thinking about how big he can make Yeah, he wallet. has his nose to the ground. He's, he's smelling the bills. <laughs> and so, yeah, the duo, they reverse engineered the entire concept for Friday the 13th after watching 1978's Halloween. And so they decided to set out a summer camp because they needed a remote location. And Victor Miller remembered the scary stories his brother used to share of their summer spent at camp while growing up. Uh, and, you know, they needed to uh, come up with, you know, a killer or a reason for, you know, all of these things happening at camp. And so the name Jason Voorhees was actually Miller's idea as well, with Jason being the combination of the first names of Miller's two sons, which were Josh and Ian, Jason. And uh, Voorhees was the name of last name of girl he went to school with. So (laughs) I don't know if uh, she knows that her last name is the namesake for this uh, killer that spawned 12 movies now, but (laughs) it's kind of an honor, I guess. Yeah, what kind of last name? I'm looking up right now. Like, what kind of last name is Voorhees? And it's it comes from the Netherlands. So I because I, yeah, well, I just was thinking like I've never heard that last name ever in normal life. So to think that there's someone like that, I was like, it sounds very European, but where exactly? But 
you're absolutely right. This random girl is just like, hey, you know, that sounds a lot like me. And then, you know, next thing you know, for the next 25 years, it's the same movie keeps coming out. It's, you know, yeah, so another fun little fact. From the Netherlands. Another fun little fact. We're not going to count this as one of the 13. So let's say uh, 3.5. <laughs> All right. Is, uh, yeah, it, w- actually, Friday the 13th, part five, um, which, spoilers, uh, Jason's not in that movie either. But uh, <laughs> one of the main actresses on that movie was named Debbie Sue Voorhees. That was like her actual last name. And um, man, yeah, she uh, <laughs> she was the one in the movie who was like the token uh, get naked girl. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, as they went through the um, credits, then when her name came up, she was just like naked. Yeah. Naked lady. <laughs> Parentheses, the one you saw naked. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, fact number four, Friday the 13th, name of the movie. That title came from, you know, a uh, title that Cunningham had previously concocted for one of his family films. So, while making Manny's Orphans, John Cunningham had struggled with distributors pressuring him to change the title as it sounded both too sad and, in their words, too ethnic. <laughs> Manny's <laughs> Orphans. Uh, I yeah, it was the uh, it was the late seventies, early eighties. So, oh, crazy times. An alternate title that he brainstormed was Friday the Thirteenth, which was completely wrong for a movie about soccer playing orphans. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. But it sounded cool and kept on popping back up in his head whenever he was looking for a better title than what Victor Miller had originally had for their Halloween knockoff which was Long Night at Camp Blood. <laughs> That's kind of a mouthful. No, well, yeah, I guess it's a, yeah, it's a night. You know, Dawn, Dawn of the Dead, Long Night at Camp Blood. It honestly sounds, yeah, Long Night at Camp Blood, that sounds like one of those 3 a.m. horror movies that you get on, like, a Wednesday, you know? Like, the baseball game's out, so we're going to put on this knockoff, like, you know, D-minus movie. Yeah, it's kind of a mouthful. You know, it, it, it doesn't really... Uh... It doesn't really roll off the tongue like Friday the 13th does. You know, Long no, Night at Camp no. Blood, you can't be like, uh, Long Night at Camp Blood number eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. What was it? Name like that, they probably would have came out with a more Yeah, you would have to shorten it to like LNACB. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, you guys ready to go see Elena Capu? Number three? <laughs> oh, man, I love that. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, fact number five, the duo secured all of their financing based solely off of a variety ad. What? Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. So Cunningham was so sure that the title Friday the 13th was going to sell the movie alone that he took out a full-page variety ad over the 4th of July weekend in 1979, year before it came out. The ad proclaims, currently in production, available November 1979, but... Both of those were bold-faced lies on their part. So the uh, guy took out, he, he takes out an ad and he's like, all right, what's going to get this going? What's going to get around people riled up? What's going to keep getting in the seats? And yeah, uh, let's just lie to them. Let's just lie. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> pretty ballsy on their part. But then again, I mean, this guy, uh, <laughs> he seemed like he was kind of a, um, you know, sure, he, he, guy. <laughs> risk taker. Yeah, let's just it. It was called, yeah, it was called a risk saver, but not with the porn industry, but with the family kids and ripping off. Yeah, so I mean, even though they took out this ad, Victor Miller, he was still in the process of 
writing the, you know, drafting the screenplay at the time. They had nothing finalized, not in production, of course. And but, you know, hey, to their credit, it worked. And the financiers behind both uh, together, their soft porn, <laughs> porn <laughs> movie, and also Last House of the Left contacted him and offered to cover the entire cost of the proposed $500,000 budget. Whoa. So, Good. Yeah, man, that worked out. Hey, <laughs> these guys, you know, I'm wondering if we can pull off these type of schemes nowadays and see how well those have worked. But there's maybe it's just something about the, that, you know, 1978, 1979 time that was just like, hey, maybe this will work or something. But yeah, hey, good, good for them. to. Like I said, it's going to take a thinking outside the box type of idea. And that's exactly what they're doing. right. Now. They didn't have the uh, Internet or IMDb back then. So all they had to go off of was this variety ad. But hey, talk, <laughs> talk about ballsy, you know, so the, the financiers offer Cunningham $500,000 budget. Cunningham actually turned them down as, you know, the long term part of the deal was going to, you know, screw him down the line. But then nobody else was offering to put up the entire budget like that. So the next morning, he had a change of heart. He actually changed his mind and called them up and accepted the deal. Uh, yeah, I think it'd be dumb not to. Just like uh, I, I can see. You mean like you mean he would get screwed long term in terms of like royalties? Is that what you're saying? Like the yeah, way I believe like, it was. It due to royalties and it actually seems like maybe they work that out a little bit later on with one of the other facts that i have here oh okay <laughs> well then, then don't let me stop you man i want to hear more of these facts we'll, we'll, we'll sum up all together here steam rolling on so the variety ad it, it also had the added benefit of helping you know cunningham and miller claim the title of friday the 13th for the project so Sean Cunningham, he actually knew of a movie that was already in development and was named Friday the 13th, The Orphan. <laughs> <laughs> what is with The Orphan? The Manny Orphans? And then we got the, you know, it, it just seems, that, what's this correlation here? You know? Orphans were a big thing back then. Uh, you know, everybody loved Annie. So <laughs> <laughs> It's all coming down from Little Orphan Annie. You know, that it's a hard that. knock life. Yeah. So. Uh, Richard Lilly, the photographer who created the Variety ad, he alleges that Cunningham was aware of the rival project. And in his own words, he says, Sean took the ad in Variety because he'd heard that another producer was going to be using the Friday the 13th title for another movie. And Sean wanted to stake his claim before, of the title before the other project went into production or was released. And it worked. I mean, the creators of the competing project – They've gone on record that, you know, they dropped the title of Friday the 13th altogether and just decided to name their movie The Orphan to eliminate any confusion between the two films. So, I mean, it, all of this seems to have really worked in Cunningham's favor, just, you know, putting out that ad and bold-faced lying. Yeah, man, there's, there's, there must be some, like, blackmailing on the side here, some no-goody-goody, because it sounds too good to be true, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but Cunningham hey, sent some boys over to break some kneecaps. <laughs> exactly, exactly, man. But hey, hey, all good for him. All, but I mean, to believe that, I mean, he's getting everything he wanted right now with, uh, you know, very little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like strife, like very little contesting here. Like the hardest contesting he's done so far is get, making sure he's got the name for the movie, which he got. <laughs> Sounds pretty good to me so far. Yeah, pieces are falling into place. They definitely are. 
And, sure. uh, you know, they definitely didn't spend too much money on the uh, actors either. Because here, fact number six, the cast was mostly comprised of New York stage actors. So, yeah, yeah, right. We talked about that earlier. Like, it's these 20, early 20 kids that just want to try and make it out of, you know, the commercial business and maybe get into the TV or movie business or they're done working their Burger King job. And they're, I mean, I, we'll go probably maybe a little more into like the conditions of where they were living when they were actually working on camp and stuff like that. But it very much seems that these guys are just trying to get the opportunity to get a name for themselves, not really doing it for the money. Definitely. This is a foot in the door type project at this point. Nobody knew how big of a success this was going to be. And so right, the casting exactly. for this movie, it was done by a company called TNI Casting. They're a New York-based casting agency. And, uh, you know, they're well-known and respected in the theater community in New York. Um, and Friday the 13th, that was going to be their first horror film that they were casting for. And so many of the actors were, you know, stage brats drawn to the auditions based upon, you know, the reputations of the casting directors on this movie. They didn't really know what they were getting into. Um, and I'd say, you know, of, of these actors that TNI casting handled, the most famous of them at the time was Kevin Bacon, um, who he had been in his first film, Animal House, just uh, six months prior to this. And, you know, after that, he, he kind of, you know, expected that uh, his career was going to be, you know, on an upwards trajectory. But he returned. Nobody was giving him calls and he returned right back to the life of a workaday actor. And so, um, yeah, he was the actually the only one that they auditioned for the part in Friday the 13th. Everybody else was just brought on straight from this casting company. Wow. Well, okay. Well, to, for, for, before I forget, I think, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a tie between Kevin Bacon, who's doing stuff and making a name, and then this Betsy Palmer, who came out of, uh, you know, she was more famous at a younger age since she was playing Mrs. Voorhees in this show. And, uh, you know, she'd been, and of course, I mean, she still had a, you know, an acting job and everything like that. But yeah. I think she was known more for her earlier works, probably 10 years prior or so that. Oh, definitely, but, yeah. Betsy Palmer was hands down the most famous actor or actress in this movie. Um, but, you know, they I don't think she was brought on by this TNI casting. They just handled yeah. the rest of the cast. Right, exactly. And that my point, yeah, the point being for that, the fact that, you know, Kevin Bacon auditioned for this part that he had while everyone else seemed to just be, you know, brought on. It's, it's kind of crazy just for the fact that Kevin Bacon wasn't the lead role. You know, he was auditioning for a, a, a side part of the movie. Yeah, you're right. That is kind of uh, that is kind of crazy. But yeah, I mean, you know, obviously he went on to have a uh, huge career. He's six degrees separated from everybody in the entire world. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> have you heard of that game? Six degrees of yeah. Kevin Bacon? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I have. I, I have definitely have heard this. I've heard this <laughs> And uh, yeah, so uh, fact number seven. Our, uh, our lead role of Alice was played by an actress named Adrian King, and she actually only got to audition for the lead role because she had a friend in the casting director's office. And so, right. yeah. if it seems like it seems like if everyone else is kind of just being walked on and everything like that, it's only if you knew someone, like if you knew a guy and a guy or somebody that hopefully you know that could give you point in the right direction. Oh, it's unfortunately all about who you know and. Yeah, King, she had been acting in commercials since she was six months old. 
So at the time of the casting process for Friday the 13th, she had just finished working as an extra in a Saturday Night Fever, John Travolta movie, and was auditioning to be in Greece on Broadway. Um, and uh, yeah, Alice's love interest in the movie, Bill, he was actually played by Harry Crosby, who uh, son of Bing Crosby, and he was attempting to make a go of it as an actor without leveraging connections to his famous father. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of people on the set didn't know that he had come from, you know, the uh, Crosby family when he was on set. He was probably just introducing himself as Harry, da 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 da, because he wasn't really trying to, um, you know, get there. Yeah. He doesn't want to show his, uh, you know, his past fame or something like that. You know, any, any sort of correlation to that, uh, you know, affect any of his, you know, his resume and his portfolio. But uh, yeah, that's that's. Uh, I knew that um, Adrian King had gone started off on Saturday Night Fight Fever. Mm-hmm. Uh, reading into that a little bit while getting prepped for this podcast, but. My question to you is, is, do you think that you could do commercials as a six-month-year-old baby? Would you want that life, you know, that, that being uh, that child? Maybe just for commercials or whatever like that, but, you know, being in front of the camera? Oh, man. Yeah. Be uh, addicted to Coke at one, uh, you know, going on <laughs> go rehab at two. Oh, man. It's a rough life. It's a fast life. It's a hard life. Uh, I don't <laughs> It sounds like those first six months of show business, man, took a real rock for Mr. Matt here. (laughs) Add a little extra bourbon to this bottle. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think I could have. You know, I've been told that I was a cute baby, but uh, I don't don't think I had the acting chops or the discipline at that age. So, Wow, egotistical much, man? Okay. (laughs) We get it. <laughs> How about you? Would you be an, a, a good child star? Uh, it depends, man. I, could I be a Gerber baby? I probably could have. I had a real lean-looking bowl cut when I was growing up. Oh, that, nice. you know, that made the lady swoon. But, I, <laughs> but if I'm going to be real, I would have gotten done with that. I probably would have gotten over that real quick. Unless like the money was good or something like that, of course I don't know what that money would be as a you know the <laughs> child that was. I wouldn't be touching any of that money, but unlimited uh, supply to Gerber's. Yeah, seriously, man. All the mashed peas and carrots I could ever hope for. Ooh, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. That that you know those carrots are good for my vitamin A, man. I, I you know that's, that's sleep darkness. You know I be I gotta be able to see at nighttime. Yeah, it helps your eyesight. That's right. And exactly. so, yeah, actually, the, the producers of Friday the 13th, they got a little bit of blowback for having Harry Crosby in their film, which, really? they, yeah, because they, they were accused of casting Harry only to further mimic Halloween, which had, you know, Jamie Lee, Lee Curtis in the main role of that movie. And she's the daughter of two well-known actors, Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. And so, yeah, they claimed, hey, you know, you're just trying to, uh, you know, copy us, do the same kind of thing, casting a uh, famous son or daughter. And they're like, we didn't even know. <laughs> and so. Yeah, like, exactly. Because Harry was trying to keep it under wraps the whole time. But if yeah. we're going to be real, that's if we're talking, you know, that's that's blow black. And I'm, I'm doing air quotes to myself in my apartment right now because that's how know. little blowback is with to me, that seems like small fry. There, you're just trying to, 
sounds like someone's angry that someone's making another hit Halloween film that, you know, taken away from uh, what they were doing originally two years prior. I think so too. And yeah, the producers have gone on record saying that, you know, the, the prospect of even having, you know, Bing Crosby's son as the male lead was something that they actually wished that they could go back in time and use for marketing because they didn't think of it at the time. <laughs> yeah, and taking up a variety, you know, a variety and then lying on it to try and build up publicity. Yeah, that might have been a better option. Probably, probably. <laughs> Fact number eight. Camp Crystal Lake setting of the movie, it was actually a uh, Boy Scouts camp. And so the movie, it was mostly filmed at a camp called Nobi Bosco in Blairstown, New Jersey. And that was a uh, Boy Scout camp. Right. I remember it was Adrian King said that it was abbreviation for uh, North. It's the area that they're in. So it's the... it's, so it's no be Bose B O S Co. So it was like North Blairstown Boy Scout Camp. So that's basically the whole what, what the abbreviation was for oh. it. Yeah, that yeah. actually makes a lot of sense with how. It's yeah, because like, it's, it's, it's a very, yeah, it's a very strange name when you think about it. It doesn't sound like that. It, that you know, it would be the name for anything other than sort of like an abbreviation. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I actually didn't know that fact. That's fact eight point five. and so yeah they uh the producers of friday 13th they were only allowed to use the camp after they made a sizable donation to the boy scouts of america and uh most of the crew and several cast members they lived in the camp's cabins while filming the movie exactly exactly so that's what i was talking about earlier about the conditions that these guys were living in because i mean if we're talking about they had to make a sizable donation to the boy scouts of america i know we're not even talking about the budgetary reasons, but the fact that, you know, it was, I believe, at least in the documentary, talking about how it was only a few weeks before the boys were supposed to be coming back to the camp anyways. So they were already on a time, a limited time frame of how actual much, uh, uh, you know, a flight date that they had to shoot right. the film on site. And uh, if I, besides, the, um, I guess, you know, the terrible weather that they had to deal with because, of course, you know, a lot of it was shot during raining times and everything like that. And then I also believe that it took – it was the time of year, at least, that it came out that they were shooting was past summer. So it was starting to get into the colder days. But uh, living at that setting and being able to just take place and live on the campground for, you know, these – young actors that are just trying to make a name for themselves. They, they, they kind of, it's to me at least sounds um, favorable, you know, they have a place to live. They, they got a really nice place to go shoot a film. They're might not be making all that much money, but they're not looking for money. They're just looking to make a real good film. That's sounds like the guy, uh, you know, like you were just saying earlier, the pieces are falling in place, not just for Sean, but for everyone. Hey, I would share a bunk with uh, Kevin Bacon. That's fine. <laughs> get to know Are him you, be best friends you you a top bunk or bottom bunk kind of man oh bottom bunk man i roll <laughs> i roll in my sleep oh okay so you're not trying to- <laughs> <laughs> that actually has happened to me many a time <laughs> rolling off the top bunk hey uh yeah speaking of the cabins you remember at one point in the movie that uh i think it's alice finds a snake in her cabin 
Oh, right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah she's having a uh, freak out. You know, everybody comes and rushes in. They're looking for the snake that went under her bed. And then they uh, they end up cutting it, cutting the head off with a machete. So yeah, well yeah, I do remember that part. I also remember the part that there are it goes underneath like the bed or like the dresser or something like that, and all of them decide to peek at one time because everyone rushes into this cabin. So there's yeah. at least like six of them in there, and all six of them stick their heads underneath the bed where there's a snake there. Like that's like <laughs> the best thing to do. I wouldn't be sticking my nose looking for a snake head first. That just looks like I'm gonna get you know get sniped with those fangs right to my cheek or something. It was a very teenager thing to do. <laughs> so I <actually laughs> cool. snake went under here. But yeah, when uh, when when they do actually kill the snake, I remember thinking to myself, I was like, man, that that was a pretty good effect, you know. That's Tom Savini did some good work on this. Uh, actually, not fact number nine. <laughs> the filmmakers actually did kill a snake for the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that was definitely a real snake. That was a real I snake. Mean, the animatronic to be making those toy snakes to just like, yeah. And to make matters worse, there was a distraught, weeping animal handler just outside the frame when they killed that snake. <laughs> yeah, she was distraught over the killing of this of this snake. So, oh man, that's just—I mean—sounds like a PETA incident to me. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, so you know, the idea behind the scenes was the counselors have to kill a snake that they find inside one of the cabins. And that's because they wanted to di- differentiate the film somewhat from Halloween by having an early fake scare turn out to be legitimate and well-established. Um, however, right. there was no yeah. PETA around at the time <laughs> that the film was you know, set. And so they actually did take a machete to a real-life snake. And when they filmed the scene, the snake's owner was standing off to the side and crying. So... Say, uh, well, yeah, that kind of sucks. I mean, I, you know, it's like, you know, if that was his pet, his pet snake, you know, that would kind of, that would really kind of suck. I, it would make a lot more sense if they just went to go like to the pet shop and went to go get a snake. You know, it could have been just a harmless garden snake or something like that. But if someone came on the set with their like pet snake and they're like, hey, man, perfect timing. Don't worry, you'll get the snake back. It just might not be the same way you got it the first time. Yeah, well, here, we're going to give you two snakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like salamander tails, right? Let's go back. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that the uh, the snake's owner knew what they were getting into, but um, yeah. Right, and you, uh, yeah, and you were saying it before. I think... I I could see how it'd be like a fake scare, you know, or at least to show that like the girls are like uh, the jumpy type. They're one to get scared. But I do believe it's the, I think the reason we saw that, because it, if you think about it, it doesn't have, that scene doesn't have a lot of um, importance when you first take a glance at it, but it does go to show that, you know, at least some of these guys can take a- action when they're, you know, they, they could, uh, yeah, like I was saying, they're, they're, they can take action when, you know, it needs to be. However, um, do, do you remember exactly who killed the snake, was it? Um, uh, that might have been Kevin Bacon. Was it? Uh, or maybe it was uh, Harry Crosby, uh, Bill, in the movie. It could have, yeah. It was either, I think it was Bill or the third boy. I can't remember. The one that gets his throat cut and he's on the top bunk when Kevin and uh, Kevin and um Marcy are making out with each other. Yeah. Uh, right. So the, th- the reason I was 
Right. The reason I was just bringing up the fact that, um, you know, maybe in my scenario, it probably should have been Adrian King that did the killing since she's the one that manages to survive and outwit the uh, Mrs. Um, Voorhees. Voorhees, thank you. Mrs. Voorhees throughout the film. Instead of having someone like Bill or Kevin Bacon do it, just for the fact that you would never get to see that action of, you know, I can, you know, fight or fright um, reaction to them because they just die. They die. Yeah, that's a good point. You could also chalk this up to, I mean, some character development, though, that she goes from, you know, kind of the scared, crying girl when she sees a snake in her cabin to handling the killer at the end of the movie. Right, right. That, no, that's also a good point to make as well, for sure. Yeah, so brings us on to fact number 10. There's Damn, only, that, only one ever. reference to Friday the 13th in the entire film. <laughs> that, yeah, and that's a crazy thing about this film altogether, maybe the first time watching it and stuff like that. And I get the fact that Friday the 13th has always been a superstitious type of day. You know, don't go walk under any ladders, don't break any mirrors, but... Like the correlation between this camp and these kids and what was happening, it just seems like, you know, that was just like a random name that they pulled out of a top hat when they were coming up with this, you know, in a, you know, production. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they just wanted to name it because they thought it was a cool name, but yeah, the creators, I mean, they almost forgot to even mention Friday the 13th in the film at all. Until Cunningham approached Miller and said they can't call it Friday the 13th without at least one reference to that day in the script. And so, yeah, at one point, um, a police officer exclaims, it's a full yeah. moon and a Friday the 13th. And that's right. the, cop. Um, <laughs> the only the reference. Cop. Yeah, it's the cop and I believe it's the head counselor who's driving him back to the camp. Uh, because he got phoned in from the other camp counselors, but he wasn't in, he was in town at the time. That's so right. they're driving down the road and heading towards the camp. And the cop is just talking about, you know, how, you know, the town's basically getting spooked out by any time that there's full moon appearances or Friday the 13th or anything like that. Yeah, and then, yeah he says that's, that's when the crazies come out, you know, a full yeah. moon and a Friday the 13th. So. Exactly, exactly. So that was, I remember that mentioned being in the film. And then, of course, I believe the guy's name, um, oh, I forget, I forget who the headmaster's name. That's exactly when he comes against Miss Voorhees, almost the next scene later. He ends up getting killed before he can make it to help the kids out. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, th- at the end scene, when uh, Voorhees is talking to Alice, um, she does make a uh, pretty big deal at the end of the movie about how her killing spree came on the anniversary of her dead son, Jason's birthday. But that only means that Jason was born on a 13th, not necessarily a Friday. And so <laughs> that oh, also yeah, that doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Sense. Yeah, the anniversary. Yeah, it's the yeah, thirteenth. We don't we don't know what day. Like, we don't even know what day the actual day was. You know, like that day. It doesn't say um, in the film at any point that it's like Friday. You know, it's just you know, hey, we got we got told by Mrs. Voorhees here that you know it's the anniversary and we could put two and two together. But you're totally correct there. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So fact number eleven. Um... There's a lot of dispute, you know, after the fact when the movie became such a success of who actually wrote which parts of the movie, who wrote the funny parts or the ending, and that all depends on who you ask. And so Victor Miller 
is Friday the 13th sole credited screenwriter. But a guy named Ron Kurtz claims he was hired by Cunningham's financial backers to punch up Miller's script in some places. So Kurtz, he claims he's the one who added some more humor to the script, specifically the character of Officer Dorf, you know, the uh, officer who comes along a little bit er early in the movie on the uh, motorcycle. And uh, he's also the one who turned Jason from a normal kid who drowns to, you know, the kind of deformed child that you see later on in the movie. Right, right. Well, that makes a lot of sense that, that like, because as you were mentioning before, that there, there was two occasions one, uh, of, so far we've talked about on the podcast, where there were script changes. And yeah. the most recent one they were just talking about was with, um, you know, making sure that they mentioned Friday the 13th throughout the film. And I remember mentioning, or at least it was mentioned in the documentary uh, Return to Crystal Lake, was the fact that it was almost consistent with how often that they were changing the script around because it seemed like almost every day that they were adding and taking away different things. So to, you know, Victor might have been the screenwriter and stuff like that, but I'm sure that he was doing a lot of scratching out and white out and things along those lines because uh, it was mentioned just throughout the, you know, the, the flight time of shooting the film that there was a lot of different changes that were just kind of, it was it was free balling essentially. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, this seemed like a uh, movie where you know it was it was being uh, filmed as new yeah. hot script changes were coming through. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It was really off the cuff, just getting make sure that they were uh, getting it up and running as soon as possible. Yeah, and Ron Kurz, he's also gone on record claiming that he wrote the ending with Jason jumping out of the water, but uh, you know that goes directly against what Tom Savini says, which is you know that hey he came up with the ending you know after he saw Carrie and uh, Cunningham right. and Miller actually back Tom Savini on this, so I tend to believe that he's the one that had the last surprise. You wanted that last scare, I think, right? Yeah, that's right. The one last scare, jumping out of the water. And man, that, that had me jumping out of my seat when I first watched the movie. That's um, <laughs> so I had no talking about coming. Yeah, talking about one last jump. I sure was jumping. Oh, oh, you tell me. It was scary. Well, you know, they Alice is all safe on the canoe. They're kind of playing some like nice strings or something. It, it, you know, it sounds like everything's going to be fine. And, you know, here come the credits. And uh, then Jason jumps out of the water. And I know it's, uh, it's something that people expect these days, but I did not expect it back then. Exactly. I agree with you. All right. Well, we're getting to the short rows on this list. Number 12 of 13, Betsy Palmer only agreed to play the villain because she needed a new car. <laughs> right, right. Which was like, I was, I was thinking, you know, because she was playing such, you know, uh, goody two-shoe characters in other roles and stuff like that to think that this girl wants to take over, uh, you know, uh, a main antagonist role. It seems just like out of her element. Absolutely. Yeah. So to audiences at the time in 1980, I mean, she was known as the squeaky clean actress from films, TV, Broadway. And so in the uh, creator's minds, she was the perfect choice to play the wholesome looking killer you would never suspect. But when she read the script, she actually hated it. (laughs) She regarded it as little more than trash. Um, 
but she really needed some quick money. <laughs> so yeah, she definitely she wanted a new car. Yeah, at the time of filming, she was commuting to theater work in New York from her Connecticut home, and her uh, she had an old Mercedes at the time that was you know constantly needed to be in the shop, and it was on its last legs. And then along came the Friday the Thirteenth project that you know she detested it, but. They were offering a salary that was the exact amount that she needed to buy a new car, which was ten thousand dollars. The ten thousand. Well, I mean, if we're being frank, all right, Betsy. If we're being frank, you don't need ten thousand dollars to buy a car. You know, you can go, you can go down and get another junker or something like that for like half the price. You know, uh, I think so she probably wanted to go from one Mercedes to another. <laughs> yeah, she did. yeah, she did. She 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 had a look about her, and she was like, "I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna go look and get my groceries and anything else other than this Mercedes." Yeah. That's also unbelievable these days when you see new car in $10,000 in the same sentence. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. Most entry-level cars these days. I mean, you know, it's hey, you're talking about a Camry. You're looking at like upper teens, low 20s. It's like, oh, gosh. <laughs> so on top of that, she knew that she'd only have to be on set and film for about 10 days. So, uh, yeah, she <laughs> she just kind of gritted her teeth, thought about how awesome her new car would be, and, um, you know, kind of took comfort thinking that, hey, this movie is going to be a piece of crap. Nobody's ever going to see me in it. Just do it for the money. <laughs> and there's so, done, there's, so a perfect example of this for someone doing it for the money was Arnold Schwarzenegger. In the uh, Batman and Robin movie, uh, the one with George Clooney in it, you know, he plays Mr. Freeze. Exactly, exactly. I read a fact that he, uh, his contract that he written with that film and the, you know, the the producer and director of that film was that he was only on set for two weeks. He got paid uh, like a million dollars every day. So just for uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he made fourteen million dollars for two weeks worth of work. Wow. and the funny part was is that his costume and his makeup was so time consuming that it took anywhere between like eight to ten hours every day to get ready. And then he had to, of course, take another, you know, let's say like six hours to get all that stuff off and all the makeup and everything like that. And so, to be honest, the man was only working somewhere along the lines of like four to six hours a day and was getting paid a million dollars each day to do it. So That's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, so to think Betsy here can walk away with a thousand dollars each day back in 1979 sounds like she can put mustard up this movie. And I bet you, of course, I bet you her uh, her manager was probably telling her, ah, you know, this is just some low budget film. You're not, it's never gonna make it to the big screen. You know, I'm sure this will come and go and it'll fade in time. Wow. Before we- yeah, dude, good for Arnie. I never knew that about uh, Mr. Freeze. <laughs> yeah, there's some other crazy facts you can learn about that film in terms of just how badly the actors and actresses had to go through just like really stupid stuff. Like George Clooney, for example. I know we're getting off topic here, guys, but I got I got to put hey, George it's a discussional podcast. <laughs> yeah, I put George Clooney on the bus here. Apparently, it took so it was so time consuming to get his Batman costume on and everything like that. And of course, his Batman costume also had nipples on the it. Nipples, <laughs> the nipples. You know what I'm talking about. But he like peed his suit. He had to pee his suit because he couldn't go to the bathroom because it would take just too much time 
in between shoots for him to take off the costume when he needed to. So poor George, man, just had a good, good, hey, let's just say he had some, he had a wetsuit on. Yeah, I've heard that George Clooney, he keeps a uh, framed photo of him in the Batman suit in his uh, office and that <laughs> he only does that so that he can remind himself that it's okay to turn down roles. <laughs> <laughs> it's all you don't have to do every single thing you want to do okay i hear you yeah uh, speaking of uh other famous actors who have been in batman movies that was kind of a stretch but michael kane you know he uh he played alfred in like the christopher nolan batman movies yeah yeah definitely i thought that you were going to throw out a fact that he was in the fourth jaws movie called jaws the revenge and he was like, you know, already like a pretty well-known actor at that point. But he was just in like this schlock movie, just thinking that <laughs> nobody's going to see it. You know, hey, like <laughs> he uh, I think he used it to either buy a new house or add on to his existing house. But yeah, they, 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 um, the for the cheddar. there was there was an interview with him um, after he filmed the movie. And uh, the interviewer said, hey, you know, Michael Ken, have you ever actually watched your performance in Jaws the Revenge? Because it's awful. He's like, no, I've never watched Jaws the Revenge, but I've seen the house it bought me. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real nice looking house. Let me just do that. (laughs) So back to to Betsy Palmer. Um, Right. There's actually a myth that's, you know, had been floating around for years that – the iconic sweater that she's wearing at the end, it was made, you know, it was put on her so she would look bulkier and more intimidating at the end. Her sweater, her, well, the sweater she was, that blue thing she was wearing. So the, the people thought that she was wearing it so it could make her look plump. Well, she's <laughs> such a, uh, she's such a, you know, frail, small woman that, you know, I, I don't think the people actually thought that, you know, she could be a killer. And so that's why uh, the myth has gone around that, hey, maybe they threw this sweater on her. Her, make her look a little bulkier but uh in actuality she was given the sweater because it was freezing outside okay um, okay so i was right yeah the time for the timing of when they were shooting this film it was cold and rainy and all that stuff so yeah it must have been during the fall or winter times so oh, absolutely yeah it was miserable on set uh whatever time of year they were filming and okay. um, but you know i to be honest i think that they were looking at that the wrong way you know the whole point was that, uh, you know, Betsy was getting away with her shenanigans, her knife-killing shenanigans. I don't even know why I'm using the word shenanigans, because she's murdering people. Yeah, those old shenanigans. I <laughs> think that's what they say in court. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll just tussle her hair and give her a finger whack. But it's the fact that she was this frail, like, common-looking woman in town, it must have seemed like, or something like that, that got her away with how she was able to murder people, so... Maybe the fact that she was wearing this like sweater, you know, if that was the, you know, so-called, you know, myth at the time, didn't seem like it would be the smartest idea. But yeah, if, if, if you're correct in the fact that what I thought it was, which was these pouring rainy days and it being stuck on a campsite and freezing cold. Yeah, I'd want a sweater too. Yeah, so I mean that's exactly it. it it's according to uh, the costume designer on the project, uh, Karen Copland. She says, I, I bought a Mexican peasant blouse, which one of the girls wears early in the film as a sweatshirt. 
The baggy sweater came from one of those places, and I gave it to Betsy because it was so cold and we had to keep her warm. There was no other reason. It had nothing to do with Betsy being a small woman or looking skinny because I remember she was fairly tall and strong-looking. At that point in the filming, there was a lot of night shooting, and it was bitterly cold, and the rainy nights were brutal and unpredictable for filming. And so, yeah, Betsy Palmer, she joined the project about halfway through the four-week shoot, at which point the 75 degrees weather that the cast and crew had enjoyed on day one, it had plummeted to near freezing temperatures with bouts of rain and snow. Um, and yeah, I mean, considering how much screen time takes place outdoors, Palmer joked, I would have died of pneumonia if it hadn't been for the baggy sweater I had on. Yeah, seriously. And yeah, she, I mean, you are correct though, because you know, she only had 10 days worth of shooting and that 10 days came for the 25 minutes that she was on screen for the last part of the film. Yeah. It's just crazy to think that, you know, she only got, she got stuck with those 10 days. She really earned that $10,000. is what I'm saying. She did. And uh, yeah, that's, I'll tell you who else earned that money. Everybody on the crew, because fact number 13, Cunningham once asked the crew to work for free in exchange for a share of back-end profits. They all said no. Yeah. I mean, you can see that. Um, but uh, there's like um, an amazing scene from a movie. I know I'm getting a little off topic here once again, but with um, a famous movie with um, Robert uh, – uh, Oh my goodness! What are the names? This movie's called The Sting. It's got Robert Redford in it and Paul Newman. There, that's what I'm about to say. And uh, the scene goes that they're 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 pulling the fast one. Basically, they're they're con artists and they're trying to pull a scheme on this uh, stuff of that. He bets horses and like that. And at one point, they're trying to find the venue that they're doing it, and they find this old basement that this this man is running. He looks like he's you know he's just running this basement. He has it or whatever like that. And in order for payment. He asked, he said, do you want to be paid on the back end or a flat rate? And so the back end, meaning whatever the cut of the profits we get off this guy, you'll get a share of it, or I can pay you up front now for the flat rate that you'll be offering. And so he says, who's the mark? That meaning, who are the guy you're conning? And so, of course, they talk, they say who the man was, and the man was so intimidating in the film and some of that, the guy goes flat rate. And I think that's exactly what was happening here with these guys, the fact that these 20-year-olds, are working in the, with this film and they know they didn't put a bunch of money into it. They're freezing their butts off and in the rain and snow at night, they're sleeping in cabins, pay me up front for my business. that. I don't think any of them could have predicted the possible, you know, exponential, much more earnings they would have gotten if they would have worked for free for those back end profits with the fact that, you know, when this movie hit the box office and got their money back tenfold, you know, they yeah. would have been, they would have, these guys would have all had a name just for the fact that these guys would have been millionaires walking away from this film. Yeah, it's one of those things that I'm sure that some of them look back and kick themselves, but nobody knew that this movie was going to be as big of a success as it was. I mean, let alone even the creators. But yeah, I mean, you know, the, the final project prod, production budget, it, it went up from 500,000 to 600,000. Uh, the creators had to do some, you know, scrounging up of that extra 100,000. And uh, yeah, the financiers, they were frequently late or delinquent to pay out, meaning that Cunningham, he pretty frequently struggled with meeting payroll for all the non-union film crew. And so he offered them all back-end profit points in exchange for working for free. 
And uh, I mean, like we just said, um, you got to remember that at that time, nobody who was working on Friday the 13th thought the film was going to ever be seen by, you know, that many eyes. And so there was no guarantee, you know, it was even going to make it to theaters. And so, yeah, to offer the crew, uh, you know, cut of the hypothetical back end profits that kind of seemed insulting to a lot of them. And, uh, you know, they had had other deals probably in the past that had fallen through on other independent projects and, you know, made absolutely nothing from them. So, yeah, I mean, it's always a toss up. I mean, basically the man's offering you an option, but it's a bet, you know, it's a risk that you're going to have to take. So do I, am I offering free labor right now for an opportunity at greater expense money or, you know, I, I'm just going to, you know, earn my wages up front. So, you know, I mean, hey, uh, well, okay. All right. Put yourself in their shoes. Would you have gone flat rate or would you have gone back in? You know, back then, not knowing that, you know, the movie was going to be successful, I probably would have gone flat rate too because, you know, you still got to meet rent. You still have to eat. You know, you don't know <laughs> if this project is ever even going to make it to theaters. So you right. got you got to get the money when you can get the money. Oh, okay, yeah, I hear that, but I, you know, we've established already that these actors aren't doing it for the money; they're doing it to make a name for themselves. Wow. And they also, well, and the fact that two years prior, Halloween was such a large success. What isn't that that that's what America's looking for? Like when you kind of think. At that time, of course, I'm, none of these guys were at the time, but, you know, with us, have, with our, you know, future glasses and everything like that, you can see the fact that, you know, there was a correlation between how America was reacting to these horror films at the time, and it was that they were popular. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, hey, I'm sure a lot of people on this set wish they could have gone back and uh, told them younger selves that as well, but... You know, it was too late. They they turn they all turned Cunningham down, but uh, yeah, Sean was able to keep on paying them throughout the shoot. And you know, obviously now crew members wish they would have taken a cut of the insane profits <laughs> instead of selling. It is what it is. It is it is. Yeah, instead of settling for the meager <laughs> salaries. Yeah, they, they. In comparison, I bet they were pretty meager. But I tell you who did take profit points was Sean Cunningham and associate producer, Steve Miner. Uh, and yeah, they became millionaires. Films monumental success. Yeah. Well, of course Sean is, I mean, yeah, Sean's going to get anything and everything. He can walk away from that film with all that, with being, you know, what we call it. We call it the WDP man. He's the writer, director, producer, <laughs> man, take anything and everything he can get from what his work part. But, uh, honestly, yeah, I, if I ever being true, I, I think I would have the same answer for you. I'd probably have gone for that flat rate. And if I had a head on my shoulders like I do now, maybe it could have convinced me to go on with those back-end profits. But it looks like it would have been only me, Sean, and Steve Miner there, <laughs> the, the AP. I would have been on that boat together. But, man, it would have been a juicy yacht. Yeah, you guys would have all had it. <laughs> yeah, it would, would have been a yacht fleet. <laughs> Listen to some yacht rock. Oh, don't get me started on the good times. Yeah, about that. I think now a lot of people would be more open to taking profit points, but back in the eighties, probably not. I mean, you hear about oh yeah, yeah. But hey, that's been thirteen facts you listeners might not have known about Friday the Thirteenth. 
<laughs> and don't you dare tell us it was 14 with those two half points because it was 13. And that's why we're doing the correlation for the show. <laughs> so there might have been a couple of half points in there, but that's all they Fact were. Fact number they 14, there's only 13 facts here. Don't tell us differently. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, hey, if good, those are great facts, man, way to, way to help contribute some of those out there because, you know, I, I'm right there with you. And, on you know, the better I can to enjoy a film but also understand what goes into making it and you know shooting some of the my iconic favorite scenes and you know what it takes to put um all these guys together in order to make something that was so monumentally successful it's just you know it's it's like chemistry you know there's a chemical balance here and for sean i think we've said it now three times but he, he hit the chemical balance. He had found all the right places from, you know, moving away from the family films to and the sophomore and the sophomore porn. Of course, <laughs> let's not forget. But also just finding the fact that, you know, um, Halloween horror films with a niche. That's what America wanted. I got this real cheap talent. I managed to scrape a couple of people together and some funds together. I got it. I put together a lie of an advertisement for it. And uh, here I am, 11 movies later. You know, I might have not might have directed them, but, you know, I'm de- I definitely think that Sean, one way or another, is getting some sort of a piece of the action, let's say, for those other 10 films. Yeah, probably. Um, some sort of royalties, royalties you know, for the name, something like that. Yeah, that would actually be interesting to research. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely the stars aligned on this project. You know, it was the right project at the right time uh, because, I mean, they, Friday the 13th wasn't the only, you know, uh, movie that was trying to kind of ape Halloween's uh, <laughs> success. But it, it was the one who did it the best and garnered the most money right after Halloween. So I don't think that we saw a movie do as well with the mainstream audiences until Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984. Um, yeah. So it took, yeah, four years later, four years later before another good horror right. movie. I'm, you know, I, of course, I didn't do the research myself, but, you know, for curiosity's sake, I would like to see that four-year gap between the 1980 and 1984 to see what other horror films may have came out during that time and see if any of them actually may have like landed their mark like we saw with this yeah. one or maybe they did. Fly on their face. Uh, three other Friday the 13th came out in that time. That's ridiculous. Yeah, they, they were on a kind of a yearly uh, thing by then. Friday the 13th that Part 4 crazy. came out in 1984 as well. I know, I know. And, um, ooh, my goodness, speaking of, I think it was either the fourth Friday the 13th or the, uh, the third Friday the 13th, third or fourth one, I can't remember. But, um, who was the secondary actor we were talking about from the Burbs? Who's from the Goonies? Oh, uh, yes, um, Corey Feldman. He was in part four. Thank you. Excellent memory. Excellent memory. Yeah. So another reason why Corey Feldman. Yeah. Another aspect of Corey Feldman being in one of his child. Uh, you know, being part of his childhood actors, like we were talking about in the Burbs. You know, he was definitely he was in one of the Friday the Fourteenth, Thirteenth. Right. He well. plays Tommy Jarvis in that movie. Young Tommy Jarvis. Young Tommy boy, I remember. Oh, Tommy boy. <laughs> the pipes, the pipes are calling. <laughs> you hear that, Michael? I think the pipes are calling us because we got to wrap up this episode, man. 
Oh, oh, Matt, you dirty dog. You're just like Shane, man. <laughs> hey, listeners, if you want to follow us on social media, we have two options available for you. We have an Instagram at that movie was. We also have a Twitter, if that's your thing, at underscore that movie was. So please follow us on And they are. Yes, they are excellent. So if you want a little bit of snippet understanding what we did last week, perhaps, if you may have missed what we did last time, or maybe you want to just get a little taste of what a podcast could be about before actually jumping right into that. Instagram and Twitter are both great places to get a little snippet of what me and Matt are bringing to the table. Let me tell you, it's juicy. It's that filet mignon steak is what we're cooking right now. All wow. right. So tell your kiss. Chef kisses, yeah. Gordon Ramsay just threw some sprinkles, some salt. It's good. It's tasty. <laughs> Tell your friends about us. Find some other people that want to listen on to stuff like that. You know, there's long car rides out there where you need a, an hour and a half to fill your time. And that's what we're here to do, ladies and gentlemen. We're here to fill your time with good movie suggestions and uh, some laughs and cries along the way, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, a lot of the people who are listeners – they also have friends who are deep into movies. So if you know anybody that might also enjoy listening to our plot podcast, please share it around. You know, we're always trying to grow that that movie was family. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And uh, also suggestions as well. You know, I think Matt said that one time before, but, you know, we're always here to focus on more suggestions of what movies might be uh, worth taking a view and worth taking a listen to and wrapping up what me and Matt think about. Yeah, it. absolutely. I mean, that's, I think why both of us got into this podcast is because, you know, we wanted to be introduced to some new movies, movies we haven't seen before. And, you know, maybe some movies that we had seen before, but we want to, you know, look at it with fresh eyes. Exactly. Perfect. Right. Well, that's been All our right. episode well, as always. on Friday the 13th. So if you like what you've heard, please subscribe, check out some of our past episodes also. Yep. Yep. And until next time, Matt, Thank you, for, as always, for the great suggestion, and uh, I'll see you next time. See you all next time. Bye. See ya.